Welcome back to The Bookcase. It's a really exciting show today. Before I introduce myself, normally we have two interviews. This week we've got three, so I know you want to stay tuned. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson. It is, as Kate says, three. Three. Not two, but three interviews three. in one, in one program. But it really should be subtitled, I guess, The Further Adventures of Catherine Gibson as She Wanders the Isles of the Brooklyn <laughs> Book Fair. But there's a variety of interviews in this program that I think you'll find interesting. First of all, a book that Kate has been touting to me for some period of time, and she believes in, and we had a chance to talk to Angeline Boli, who is the author of The Firekeeper's Daughter. But also, we have a chance to revisit Sadiq Fofana. And if you are a listener to this podcast, you know how much we loved his book, A First Novel, Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. And uh, Sadiq lives in Brooklyn, so it was, I guess, natural that he would show up at the Brooklyn Book Fair. (laughs) But I'm curious uh, to see what we talked to this first-time author about how he felt going into the process just before his book was to be released. And I'm really curious to hear him talk about what's happened since it was released and and since he was on the bookcase when I'm sure sales shot up by the by the tens of thousands. Oh, we changed his life. We changed We changed the entire trajectory uh-huh. of his life. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, Angeline Boley, we'll start with her, and then I'll talk a little bit about Sadiq. But Angeline Boley has written a terrific book called The Firekeeper's Daughter, which is about a young woman coming of age on a reservation who gets pulled into an undercover drug investigation. And I know that sounds very dark, but it is really a joy to read. There's lots of humor. There's lots of beauty, I think, that Bully brings to her writing and exploring the Anishinaabe culture. There's lots of YA books, I think, that are about coming of age. I mean, there's lots of books about figuring out who you are. Am I this? Am I that? Am I this enough? Am I that enough? This book actually almost makes it literal because bloodline in the Anishinaabe culture to get membership is very important. As Angeline says, there's even some conflict within the bands because some people argue that the process of measuring a bloodline for membership is a colonizing concept. I mean, the only other things we measure that way are racehorses and dogs. So it's interesting to literally be exploring how much is somebody actually of something physically while they're also trying to figure out who they are. Sadiq was just really exciting for me because I very much wanted to meet him. But what I really loved about our conversation was he is clearly a fellow fan. Like he was so excited to meet certain people at the Brooklyn Book Festival. And he tells a fanboy story about Colson Whitehead. And he tells a fanboy story about Jonathan Escoffrey. He's clearly just thrilled to be in these folks' company. And in some ways that encapsulates how I feel about this whole podcast. And has written a book that puts him very much uh, in that canon. Yes. He he belongs with those people. I think the book is that good. So, Kate, at the Brooklyn Book Festival, uh, there she is in aisle three. She takes a left, and my golly, there's Angeline Boley, the author of the book that she loves, The Firekeeper's Daughter. And so, Kate stuck a microphone in her face and talked to her about the book. Angela Bully, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I'm so excited because I'm a huge fan of The Firekeeper's Daughter. I want to start by asking you, for those of our listeners who don't know, could you explain the significance of The Firekeeper's role in Anishinaabe culture? The role of a firekeeper in an Anishinaabe community is ceremony is everything. And we always start with a ceremonial fire. And so firekeepers are men who have been trained 
to strike the fire in a traditional way and with certain prayers. And then we maintained that fire for the entire duration of the ceremony or powwow or language conference or, you know, whatever that purpose was. And then the fire goes out. It's allowed to go out naturally. And then the event is considered over. And what is the significance to the novel of a firekeeper in the story? In the story, we have a teaching about the first firekeeper, original firekeeper and firekeeper's daughter, that she begins each day by lifting the sun in the east with a song. And my character, Donis, she's put into this situation where she has to reluctantly help the FBI with this undercover drug investigation. And she carries a lot of responsibility in the course of this investigation. And she reflects back on Firekeeper's daughter, the teaching about how this person had all this responsibility and didn't even have her own name. And so Donis decides to give her a name and center her as who she is and what she does rather than her relationship to the father. Did I read that your father was a firekeeper? Yes, he still is. Tell me a little bit about Donis and what she's going. She's gone through an awful lot in her life, even before the book begins. And then she goes through an awful lot in the book. Tell me a little bit about what she's going through and how these trials go about shaping who she is when we meet her and how they continue to shape her throughout the book. Well, when we meet her, her favorite uncle has passed away a few months ago and followed shortly after by her grandmother having a a major stroke and being in a long-term care facility. And Donis, like me, has an Ojibwe father and a non-native mother. And her Ojibwe grandmother has always told her that bad things happen in threes. So when we meet Donis, she's reflecting on her uncle has passed grandmother is suffering from the debilitating aftermath of a stroke. And she's just wondering what the third bad thing will be. And she decides to stay home instead of going away to college to care for her mother is a bit emotionally fragile. And so she thinks she's going to prevent the third bad thing from happening by staying home and taking care of her mother and going to the local university with her best friend, Lily. And that's where the story opens up. And really, Donis has always felt like she didn't belong either on the reservation or in the non-Native community. And then she meets this new boy in town who's on her brother's elite hockey team. And the third bad thing happens, and she is pulled into this undercover drug investigation that is devastating her community. And she decides that she will help and find out who's behind this deadly drug that's been brought onto her reservation. I'm interested because there's a big theme in this book about the importance and the difficulty of tribal membership. And I think a lot of people don't know, you know, they sort of make assumptions about what tribal membership is and how it's attained. Tell me a little bit about the significance of tribal membership for those who don't know. Sure. So there are 574 federally recognized Indian tribes in the United States. Each tribe has the sovereign right to determine their own eligibility criteria for citizenship in that tribal nation. And many tribes use blood quantum, a certain blood quantum percent to establish membership 
My tribe does not. We do a lineal descent, which means we can trace our ancestry to certain historical roles of Native people in my community, but we don't have to have like that. Either you or your parent or your grandparent had to have been established as a full full blood. My book does get into how blood quantum is like a colonizer concept of pedigree. And really in the States, there's only three things that are established by this pedigree, and that's racehorses, dogs, and Native Americans. And it's really bizarre. And so I wanted to break down the concept of this tribal enrollment into something that you can see the effects, how this affects teens in the community. And that I draw upon my own experiences working in different tribal communities in Michigan and, you know, whether or not one person in the family was enrolled and one person wasn't. I mean, you just saw harmful effects on the kids. I want my listeners to understand that even after you explain the the plot of the book, which is a heavy plot, a very serious plot, but there's still a lot of joy in this book. There's tradition, there's community, there's a lot of humor. When you approach telling a story of a marginalized community, do you have to keep that as part of your conscious mission to strike that balance? Or does it just come naturally to you as a storyteller? I think it does come naturally. But then I am always mindful because you don't want to mine the tragedy. And you want readers to know that we are more than our trauma. And there are some stories that dwell on the trauma part and leave out the joy and the humor and the things that are as much a part of my community as our historical trauma. I want to know where you started with this book. Did it start with a character for you? Did it start with a story? Did it start with, I mean, what did you meet first? I was 18 years old. I was a senior in high school and my best friend went to a nearby school and told me about a new boy, senior year, who she thought would be my type. And I was dateless and intrigued. So I wanted to meet him, but I never did because a few weeks after she tells me about this great guy, she informs me that no, he's not my type because he doesn't play sports and he hangs out with the students that drink and smoke and, you know, recreational drugs, maybe not so recreationally. And um, so I never met him. And at the end of the school year, there were a number of drug arrests in their community. And it turned out that the new guy had been an undercover police officer. And I remembered thinking this was just like few years before 21 Jump Street original show. Wow. Yeah. And so the thought of this new guy actually being an undercover law enforcement officer, I thought, what if we had met? And what if we liked each other? What if he needed my help? And really, that was the spark for the story of this 18-year-old girl. I didn't start writing until I was about 44. And so in that in-between time... Wow, that's quite a gestation period. Oh, yeah. It incubated a very long time. But I was working in different Native communities, and I would see different situations, and I would think to myself, oh, so if it was a federal investigation on a reservation, and the drug had a recipe that could be manipulated... And maybe there was something that had a cultural component that was added to this deadly drug to make it even more deadly. Then what if she was really good in chemistry 
And what if she also really knew a lot about her tribe's traditional medicines, using plants and herbs as, as for medicinal purposes? Then she would be the ideal undercover informant for this investigation. So those details were like puzzle pieces that I kind of slowly maybe built the frame of the puzzle pieces. And and then when I was 44, I think I had enough pieces in place that I thought, okay, I'm going to try writing this story and see what happens. But that gestation period took you away from the age of which you originally thought of it, which Donis is. I would find it very difficult now to sit down and write from the mind of a teenager. How did you go about saying, I want to make the authentic voice of this younger woman work for you? Well, I worked in Native education. I worked for tribes as a tribal education director. I've always worked around teens. And then, of course, my own kids, when I started writing, they were teens. I feel like over the last few years, way, way, way overdue, there have been a rise of authentic voices telling the stories of their marginalized communities. So I wanted to give you a chance to get on your soapbox, because I think it's an important message to talk about why it's important for authentic voices from marginalized communities to tell their own stories. And representation is so important because, so the uh, Cooperative Center for Books for Children, it's the CCBC, and it's out of University of Wisconsin at Madison. And they've been keeping data on the numbers of books published every year in the U.S. for children and teens and identifying main characters that are Black, Indigenous, other people of color, and they've been keeping these statistics. And when they first started doing this for Indigenous populations in 2002, it was nine times out of 10, a book featuring a Native character was written by a nominee. Nine out of 10? Nine out of 10, yes. Wow. And um, the numbers of books that have been published each year hasn't changed, but the percentage of books authored by Indigenous authors has increased 900%. So it's now, I believe, out of 60-ish books published each year for children and teens that feature a Native main character, it's now, I believe, the reverse, like 80 to 90% of the time it is an Indigenous author. And I think it makes a difference in the quality of the storytelling being able to strike that right balance of telling unpleasant truths about a community while never losing focus of the beauty and joyful things of that community. And also, most importantly, what not to put on the page because didn't write about ceremony because that's not my place to include about that. And so I think writing from a community that you know, more importantly, is knowing what to leave off if you could, and I don't want you to give too much away, but I'm excited because you're publishing another book in the spring of this year. Can you give us like a, a tiny little preview of Warrior Girl Unearthed? <laughs> so um for a walk on a Sunday and all of a sudden this character popped into my head and she said, I stole everything they think I did and even stuff they don't know about yet. And I was like, who is this? And so I ran into the nearest business and I ran up to the bar and I said, I need a piece of paper and a pen. (laughs) And so I sat there for a couple of hours and a couple of glasses of Chardonnay and wrote this 16-year-old girl sitting in a police station 
waiting for her parents to come get her after she's been arrested. Do you anticipate that being your, I mean, because it sounds like Donna sort of appeared to you and tapped you on the shoulder. And so this new character tapped you on the shoulder. Is that how you think it always is going to begin for you? Somebody just, it's a voice in your head all of a sudden and you think of Yes. And I think that having this experience of this story coming along when I was ready for it, I think I have a faith that when I'm ready, the story will come to me. And of course, um, there's a lot of work in finding exactly that story and what that's going to be about. But just knowing that that voice, that creative spark, that it wasn't a one-time deal, that makes me feel very good about being a full-time author. So I got in touch with you because I am at the Brooklyn Book Festival. You were at the Brooklyn Book Festival. I don't know that a lot of folks at home understand what a book festival is and what it is for. What is the importance of book festivals? Book festivals are this incredible opportunity for readers to meet the authors, to attend panels. So it's just a great opportunity to see your favorite authors and then book signing. I love it because writing can be such a solitary act, but once your book is published, it ceases to be your book and it's the reader's book. And so being able to engage um, and talk with people who feel strongly about your story one way or the other. To me, I, I enjoy it. The book is The Firekeeper's Daughter. If you haven't read it, it's an amazing book. Angeline Boley, Rapid Fire Questions. A little early in the broadcast for Rapid Fire, isn't it, Kate? It is, but I really wanted to hear her answers. And, you know, it's my show, so do it my way. <laughs> <laughs> Lesser known book you recommend to everybody? Crazy Horse's Girlfriend by Erica T. Worth. Why? I believe the first chapter of that book should be taught in every Masters of Fine Arts creative writing course in establishing such a distinct voice of a character. Terrific indigenous authors that America should be reading, but aren't. Marcy Rendon. She writes adult, but I would be comfortable recommending her books to any teen as well. She writes mysteries. And the way she writes, my dad, I had, my dad read her books too. And he said, she writes the way Anishinaabe people see the world. She's so descriptive, and the senses just come alive on the pages of her book. I think that she is the most underrated Indigenous author out there. Most influential book in your life? The Last Time They Met by Anita Shreve, because it was the first time I read a story that was told backwards, and I realized, wait, you don't have to tell stories in a linear fashion. You can play with time, and that it actually can elevate the story into something more revered book that maybe you're sorry you read. I think all the, the wizard of Oz uh, books really um, finding out that Al Frank Baum was a racist who called for the extermination of native Americans. Yeah, that would, that would definitely do it for me. Book you have read most often. The Merrill thieves by Cherie Dimeline. Her writing is beautiful. But the story and the devastation and the clever way that she talks about extermination politics and frames it in this different way. So, yes, The Merrill Thieves is the book I've read the most often because it has so many layers. I feel like one reading just there's this whole other story beneath the plot. 
Favorite person to talk books with? I would say Cynthia Lydic Smith. Um, she is a prolific <laughs> author of Native children's literature. And she's just so incredible to talk about. She knows everybody and everything and teaches at Vermont College of Fine Arts. She's involved in the creative writing and really instrumental in forming this Native writers dialogue for children's literature that I think we don't feel alone now. And lastly, a question we stole from Stephen Colbert that we think is very illuminating. In five words, what do you want the rest of your life to be? Health, writing, wine, and travel. I love it. Angeline Bully, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for calling in. Good luck on your panel today. I can't wait to read the new book. I loved The Firekeeper's Daughter. I couldn't put it down. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thank Take care. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's Angelina Boli, who's the author of The Firekeeper's Daughter. But as we mentioned, Kate wandered on at the Brooklyn Book Festival. The left aisle three took another right turn. And there was our friend Sadiq Fofana. Uh, Sadiq, who wrote stories for the tenants downstairs that we featured in an earlier podcast, his first novel, the first novel of a English teacher in a Brooklyn high school, just like thousands and thousands of other teachers, but a distinguished published author now with a wonderful, wonderful book that we continue to recommend. But one of the things that really interested me is that there is a lot of authenticity to stories from the tenants downstairs. There are some words that perhaps you wouldn't uh, necessarily be saying in polite company. And yet uh, he has to go into a classroom with students who say, Mr. Fofana, is that the mouth you kiss your mother with? Uh, uh, I'm sort of curious. I bet that's not how they put it, by the way. I don't think I it that's is. That's not no. how they put it. No. That's not how they put it at all. You know, I think it's worth noting that, you know, we joke about being in aisles, but I was at the Center for Fiction, which was right in the heart of the Brooklyn Book Festival. And Sadiq actually had a fellowship with the Center for Fiction. And I wanted just to say, too, that he talks a little bit about it was the first chapter of this book that he submitted to get his fellowship, which I think And really fellowships cool. like that are very important to first-time yeah. authors who's looking for some, not just the money, but for some kind of affirmation. Mm -hmm. That can be very, very important. So Sadiq gets a fellowship, then he gets a, a publisher, and then he gets an appearance on the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. And, um, and and he's off and running with students who find out that he knows some words that maybe they thought he didn't. Um, but a wonderful book, as we say. So we had a chance, Kate had a chance to follow up with Sadiq Fofana, author of Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. We're so excited to have you back in the bookcase. Tell me 
about how things have been since the release. Tell me about the release and how things have been since. Yeah, it's been it's been really exciting and really weird at the same time. It's exciting to put faces to readers. It's exciting to attend festivals, to be on panels with authors, to have people write nice words about the book. Blasts from the past have been great, you know, <laughs> reunions with old friends and going out to dinner with them and people I haven't seen in maybe a decade or so reaching out. It's been really, really, really cool. And it's been also really strange because it's like September hits and then I go from like author of stories from the tenants downstairs to Mr. Fofana, school teacher. And, you know, I thought like, oh, I'm going to walk in the building and there's going to be paparazzi. <laughs> but <laughs> none, none, no, none of the such there. Um, but people have been very, very happy, fellow teachers and students. Um, but then they've also, which I appreciate, just been normal and regular around me and it's been cool how's the school you've been going so far it's been going great you know lots of lots of hard work i'm teaching three ap classes um yeah my school is all english all english and my school is called the brooklyn school for math and research and so it's been a challenge just like teaching formational writing argumentative writing but it's also been fun it's like i get to work a different muscle writer muscle and teacher muscle there as you approach your second book which i hope you are because i can't wait to read it have you established a process for yourself have you developed a process as you've gone into the second book yeah it's a little bit more refined i used to just read a lot for just leisurely reading pleasure reading but now i find myself like giving myself a curriculum based on the story i'm writing or based on the essay i'm writing i try to see which classic pieces could influence me and inspire me in the best ways. So it's a lot of like creating reading lists and just allowing the subconscious mind to do that writing. I still haven't committed to a, a like writing another collection or a novel. I kind of just want to just write like these separate pieces and see where they, where they go. One of my favorite rappers, Andre 3000, like he has like, Great albums with uh, with Outkast, like super great albums. But if you look at his work, like the last 10 or so years, it's like he'll just drop a verse every now and then. And it's so great when it happens. You're like, how can a rapper who has not released an album release a verse and you listen to it and you're like, wow, it's the greatest rapper of all time, you know? Um and so that idea of like, well, maybe you don't need a, like a whole book or a whole album. Maybe you could just try your hand at something shorter, which is easier said than done. But I kind of like that idea. Well, and I think that's probably takes some of the pressure off of you, because one thing I've heard about from writers is the process of the second book sucks mm. because you can't get the first book out of your head. Mm. Um, mm. So I think it's probably good to take a break until something hits you, a muse hits you. But you're thinking maybe, maybe if you write some of these shorter pieces, you'll see some. Yeah, I tend to write along thematic lines. So these stories, first stories, they just came as like isolated pieces. And then I just connected the dots and maybe something similar or at least organic will sprout from just writing 
the shorter pieces. Where are we right now? And what does this place mean to you? Oh, Center for Fiction. That's great. This was a place that accepted me as a fellow. They took me on 20 pages of writing. And if I'm not mistaken, what the... Oh, I submitted the rent manual. Did you? Yeah, to Center for Fiction. And it's open to emerging writers. The only stipulation is you have to be a New York resident. You don't have to have any references. It's just you send the writing in and, you know, they judge it. And hopefully they'll magically make your day. Um, And just the support. And it's one of those things where, like, the support during was great. It was phenomenal. Sitting with like agents, editors, they give us like exclusive access to the events. Um, I got to see uh, Roxanne Gay and Angela Flournoy and they have like a big um, dinner where they they award the Center for Fiction first novel award. And I remember I met Colson Whitehead there. And when I met Colson Whitehead, he was like, I'll never forget this. It's a bunch of us fellows. We're around him and we're just starstruck. And we like don't know what to say, but we asked the question that, you know, none of us as writers want to answer. And we asked him like, so what are you working on next? <laughs> and he had just published the Underground Railroad. And I'll never forget this because he was, he said, well, I already turned my next book in. It's some civil rights thing. It took place in the civil rights era novel. And he said it so like dismissively. And it was a book that won the Pulitzer. <laughs> like, and I just remember when he said, ah, I turned this 1960s novel in. That was great. And so just the access. And like I said, a lot of places are very nurturing in the moment. But as an alum, It's like the invitations that they've extended to me afterwards have been really great. And it's been cool to just even the the fellows who have been here before me, they're out in the world. And it just feels like this like nice organization, like a nice sorority fraternal like organization. That's Mecca Jamila Sullivan was a fellow. So it just feels like a cool family. I have a couple of recommendations for you, by the way, based on our conversation. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I'm reading If I Survive You, Mm. um, which is another book written from the you point of view, which we talked about, which I'm finding really interesting, especially given the fact that it's similar intertwined stories for all one giant narrative. Mm. Have you read that one yet? I haven't read that one, but way back in March... And speaking of people who are just like so humble and dismissive, like I was on a panel at AWP with Jonathan and Scoffrey and, he, he, you know, it was it was great. We all got to talk about our debuts. Just came off a panel where, you know, I bought like four books. It's funny, like I'm going broke now. <laughs> I'm going broke. <laughs> it's like, you know, I signed a few books, but then I like buy like a whole bunch. And so on my to read list is um, David Santos. Donaldson, Greenland, a novel obsession by Caitlin Barash, who I just met. And then in North Carolina, I met Brendan Slocum and the violin conspiracy. And I'm like halfway through that and I'm totally in it. Never thought I would love like violin mysteries, but it's been it's been really I can't great. wait to read that. I haven't it, read that yeah, yet. It just came out on really, paperback. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so good. It's so good. Well, guys, we did this follow-up purely because I'm a fan. And I wanted to talk to him again. And I wanted to meet him in person. So thank you so much for coming in because this is awesome. And, uh, you yeah, know, write another one. 
So the Center for Fiction, where I talk to all of these great folks, as I say, as a combination of a bunch of different things. It's a well-curated library. It's a center for authors. It's a not-for-profit that gives out amazing fellowships to writers. And in its lobby is a beautiful, beautiful bookstore. And it is managed by somebody that you would actually, you would totally expect to be right there in Brooklyn because, of course, he's from Australia. And his name (laughs) is Jory Southhurst. And I had a chance to catch up with him. Joy, we're really excited to have you in the bookcase. Tell us where we are. Uh, we are at the Center for Fiction in downtown Brooklyn in New York, which is a literary nonprofit that within this building houses a bookstore, a cafe, a members lounge, an event space, and a private lending library. So it's kind of meant to be a catch-all center for the love of and promotion of fiction but really kind of storytelling in all its forms. But it has a history that's very, 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 very long and rich. <laughs> it does, um, yeah. Give me sort of, as, if you can, as much of the Reader's Digest version of the history as you can. I can. So it started in 1821 as the Mercantile Library. So it's one of New York's oldest libraries. It was in Midtown Manhattan, which I guess everything probably was in 1820. Um, and then in 2005, it we kind of pivoted to becoming the center for fiction with this idea of promoting fiction and storytelling. And then in 2009, we moved from that Midtown location to the downtown Brooklyn Arts Cultural Center, which was where we are now. So obviously the Center for Fiction is going to have a somewhat specifically curated selection that they sell in the bookstore. What is the process there? How do you guys put your offerings together? So we have an incredible buyer. Her name is Melanie Fleischman. She does the majority of our new release buying. We have, obviously we're called the Center for Fiction, so we have a focus on fiction, but we also have everything that a regular bookstore will have. But we kind of try to particularly focus and highlight works by small presses and translated works. And then we have a pretty deep backlist, so like old, not new release books. That's industry talk, backlist. And that is curated both by Melanie and then just by the booksellers that work there. So every bookstore that you work at, you want the books on the shelves to be the books that the people that work there read and love and care about. And so the first thing everyone does when they start working is like, give their list of staff picks and we order them into the store and have them on the shelf so that they can champion them really. When folks come into your shop and say, what are you excited about for a fall? What are you guys putting in their hands? What we've had the last couple months, I think surprise hits. So Jeanette McCurdy's I'm Glad My Mum Died kind of immediately went into reprint and we can't keep it on the shelves. RF Kwong's Babel, similar thing. Um, Everyone rushed in the first day and bought it and then We had to wait a few weeks until we got them back in. So I think that our customers, our readers, are surprisingly self-assured. They know exactly what they want. We definitely get people asking more if we have a book, a particular book, rather than asking what we would recommend, which is a really interesting thing. You talked a little bit about your buying focus and how you guys really try to make sure that you hit up independent publishers. For folks at home who aren't familiar with sort of the world of publishing, What role do independent publishers play and why are they so important to the industry? They play a huge role, particularly for independent bookstores, because obviously big publishers have big budgets and can get their books in anywhere, really. Bookstores 
airports, anywhere that might sell a book, a big publisher is going to be able to get a book into it. Smaller publishers have less of that. And so therefore, I think that they kind of use independent bookstores in a way to promote their work. And we use them to differentiate ourselves from other bookstores. I think the indies are really where your character and your kind of like weirdness comes out. And it's so it isn't just the same books in every store that you go to. Are they harder sales? No, because I think that the people that work, at least in this bookstore, at least at the Center for Fiction, love them. And so those are the books that they're interested in. If you went and checked our staff pick wall, it's going to be all kinds of like niche, little, weird, translated works. So I don't know. They're not hard to sell. I think they're the books that people get more passionate about. The most influential book in your life. Influential. I, (laughs) not just favorite. We can start with favorite and see if it inspires you towards influential. I think this is going to make me sound crazy for the people who know the book, but I think maybe um, Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life, because it is a really, really bleak book. um, And I have not been influenced by that part. But um, alongside that, it is a really like beautiful, romantic story of, love between men and I think that that I've kind of like I still think about it years and years later about how just nice they were to each other how they treated each other with love and respect and kindness and support you know that's something we all aspire to right tell me about the events at the store and what role they play in the life of the store part of any bookstore is you hope to be able to reach the community and provide things that they're interested in and so just to be able to invite people into our space our beautiful space and have them see people that they like and are excited about and interested in is just you know it's what it's all about really over the summer we had Atessa Mashve um, launch her new book Lapvona um, in conversation with John Waters which now there's an interview yeah it was it was very interesting and <laughs> uh, and Clavis Natera had an event here earlier this summer as part of her tour for her uh, debut novel and will be coming back for an event later in the fall, I believe. It's a beautiful store. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. So we leave Kate Gibson holding her microphone and her tape recorder, <laughs> having exhausted <laughs> interviews at the Brooklyn Book Festival, and we move on. Kate standing there with hope in her eyes, ready to interview whoever will... No, I'm just... I'm babbling on. This is a Roman sandal epic (laughs) of a festival visit. and But I do want to thank listeners who stayed with me and came with me. These festivals are really fun. And I hope we get to go to more in the future. They're all around the country. And it's a terrific opportunity to catch up with writers and listen to what's going on in the book world, which nerdy me, I really enjoy. So thanks for that. Next week, we should mention... It's a show that we pre-recorded it, and I love the interview. It's Thanksgiving. We will drop this podcast, as they say in the podcast world, or post it, as I think of, with the owner of a bookstore that sells only cookbooks or books about food or books about drink. It seems counterintuitive to me that you can make an entire bookstore successful on just that one topic, but this is the case with a store called Omnivore in San Francisco. And since everybody's mind will be on the subject of food on Thanksgiving Day, we thought it would be interesting to devote a show to a bookstore that really does deal with nothing but food and drink. 
people will be what's the chemical that you get when you eat all that turkey and stuff tryptophan tryptophan, tryptophan. yeah they so you, sell it they sell it in in, in, in you know it's a, you know you get, come on you know send to me a send to me a tryptophan tryptophan no i'm just kidding um it's on yeah, every so shelf it's on every shelf in a bookstore it, it is there's quite a market there's quite a black market for for tryptophan um but yeah it'll be a great it'll be a great show unusual but fun all of our listeners will be sated with tryptophan and uh, in a mellow mood, and we will get all those who aren't watching football. Uh, there'll be two categories of people on Thanksgiving Day after they finish their dinner. They'll be watching football or they'll be listening to the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. You can tell I'm in a punchy mood. Um, <laughs> so We do swap some great Julia. There's some great Julia Child stories in next yeah, week's episode. Yeah, you're not going to want to miss those, so for sure. No, I don't think anybody owns a bookstore about food that doesn't treasure the fact that Julia Child, there's probably a whole shelf of Julia Child books. Um, she didn't write that many, but boy, does she still sell. <laughs> so that'll be next week. Um, Omnivore Bookstore in San Francisco. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody in advance. We hope you get a chance to spend some time over the holidays with family, with people that you love. And we're around if you just need a friendly voice from the bookcase. So, Kate, let's remind everybody who makes this program possible, and then we'll go away. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. All right, so we don't have any coda. Authors, sort of small thought to end the podcast with. So I'll just end it since next week is Thanksgiving. Uh, please pass the great coupon. 